Well, hello, Trinity family. Allow me to add my word of welcome to you all as we are continuing in our journey through the book of Genesis. And today, as we're taking a closer look at the next chapter in the story, I wanted to pause for a moment and just think about our news headlines for just a second. I have found that the more I scroll through my news feed, the more I encounter just really bad news, really disheartening and discouraging headlines. And as I've talked with people about the different things that we see in the news, what I've noticed is that people start to say some very religious sounding things the moment we encounter some of those heartbreaking headlines. People will say things like, that's terrible, that's wrong, that's not the way it should be. And the reason I call those religious sounding headlines is because what they're essentially saying is that there is something such as right and good and the way things should be. We're implicitly acknowledging that there's actually supposed to be an order, a rhyme and a reason to our world and how it's supposed to operate. And so when we encounter these, these moments in the news that break our hearts and leave us just in awe and in discouragement of the brokenness of our world, what it's highlighting for us is that we know inherently that it's supposed to be different. You see, that's what we've been talking about so far. That as we looked at the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, what we found is that our universe was created with beauty and order and design. It's not simply the result of random chance, mathematics uh, and atoms crashing into each other. No, that we have a God who is a designer, who created everything that we see with beauty and order and design. And one of the things that we see over and over again in Genesis chapter one is that at every stage of creation, God says it's good, it's good, and ultimately it's very good. But the question then becomes, so then how did we get here? where we live in a world with heartbreaking headlines, where we live in a world that's so uh, bathed in brokenness that sometimes we're just left astounded and discouraged and wondering what we can possibly do. Basically, how did our world get so broken? And that's why this next chapter in the book of Genesis is so important because it's here that we get an answer to that question. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 3. Likewise, if you're kind of follow, following along with us in your scripture journal, you can pull that out. And we want to flip to Genesis chapter 3 because what we see is that the reason our world is broken is that it all stems from an initial rebellion on the part of humankind. But it doesn't just begin there. It's something a lot more subtle. What we see is that the brokenness enters our world first by starting in mockery, then moving to suspicion and ultimately ending in rebellion. Here's what I mean. We read in Genesis chapter three that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, I want to pause right here with just that verse. You see, what the serpent is saying is he's not questioning whether God actually said this or not. He's mocking it. He's saying, did God really tell you that there was a tree that you couldn't enjoy? You see, what we see is that the initial brokenness of our world, it entered in first through mockery. Basically, the snake comes along and tells Adam and Eve, the, the first human couple who are living in this beautiful, gorgeous paradise that God has created for them. He starts to say, but did God really tell you that there was one thing in this gorgeous, beautiful, amazing place that you couldn't touch, that you couldn't eat, that you couldn't enjoy? 
See, it begins in this kind of place of ridicule, of suddenly making Adam and Eve feel like the very idea of obeying God's command on this one point is ridiculous, it's silly, it's foolish. And that's important for us to note because I think that actually this is one of the quickest ways to undermine a person's faith, is not to try and argue against the rationality of it, but to simply make it look ridiculous without any other critical thought. You see, that's the strategy that's being employed here. I actually think about what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is this fictional account of a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how he could tempt human beings, how he could get them to turn their backs on God. And and at one point, Screwtape says the following. He says, a thousand body and even blasphemous jokes do not help toward a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows, if only it can get itself treated as a joke. And this temptation can be almost entirely hidden from your patient by that English seriousness about humor. Any suggestion that there might be too much of it can be represented to him as puritanical or as betraying a lack of humor. But flippancy is best of all. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know, and it is quite free from the dangers inherent in other sources of laughter. It is a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect and it excites no affection between those who practice it. See what Screwtape says is he says that flippancy, ridicule, is one of the sharpest tools in Satan's shed. That to undermine faith, all we have to do is not argue against it rationally, but simply undermine it with ridicule by making it look silly, stupid, and foolish. And honestly, we live in an age of ridicule, not of reason. We live in an age where people and ideas are dismissed not on the basis of their merits or their lack thereof, of their positions, but simply because someone deemed them so silly, quaint, or out of touch that they're not even worth our exploration. And quite honestly, we see this not just when it comes to faith and religion, but to all kinds of positions. We live in an age where where reasoned arguments between people can be debunked with a 150-character tweet. And there's a danger in this because it undermines us from actually thinking through the implications of what we're suddenly laughing along with. It invites us to simply go with the flow without question to make God look ridiculous without any critical thought as to the question of his existence, much less the proofs, of, uh, the proofs of them, is the ultimate way to undermine our faith. And you see, this is where it begins. Not in a frontal assault against believing in God, but simply by mocking him, making faith look ridiculous, small, out of touch, and irrelevant. But what starts as mockery doesn't stay there. It then progresses into suspicion, Notice what he says then next. After the woman responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent responds, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the next thing that the serpent does is he then insinuates doubt. 
He raises suspicion. He basically gets them to think that God is holding out on them, that he's keeping them from enjoying something wonderful that, that is actually for their benefit and for their good. See, this is important because oftentimes people look at this passage and they kind of sympathize with Adam and Eve right here. They say, look, God, uh, God doesn't want us to know things. God wants to keep us ignorant and silly and foolish. But, but to have that kind of assessment of this text is actually to kind of miss the cultural implications that are behind it. You see, back in the ancient world, to know something wasn't mean to, didn't mean to simply know it intellectually. It meant to experience it to know it through experience. And, and the danger here when God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that he was trying to protect them from experiencing the consequences of evil and brokenness. You see, that's what this tree represents in the midst of the garden. It represents a choice. Are we gonna eat from the tree of life and trust God for everything that we could possibly need? Or are we gonna go our own way grasp knowledge for ourselves apart from him. And the temptation that the serpent uh, you know, encourages them to step into and to entertain is this idea that God's holding out on you. And so they don't trust him. That's really what's at the heart of this very temptation is believing that in some way, God doesn't have our best interests at heart. That we're missing out on something by following his laws and commands. And what we fail to see is that those laws and those commands are given for our good. That in the same way, I tell my children not to play in the street because I want to protect them from the consequences of the danger that could be found there. So here too, God has given them a choice. He's warned them that there's one thing that could be to their detriment and their harm. And the question is, will they trust him? And, and the serpent goes right after that and insinuates that there's something here that God doesn't want them to enjoy. And I think that this is a part of the reason so many people struggle with faith. We have this deep mistrust of God that leads so many people to turn their backs on him. And this problem is not only alive and well out in our world, it's actually alive and well within our churches. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people would say that they trust God for their salvation, but then live as if, uh, live our lives as if his guidance doesn't matter, his presence doesn't exist, and his decrees are merely suggestions. We trust him with our eternity, but we don't trust him with our everyday living. Right here is where that suspicion comes in. Maybe God really doesn't have our best interests at heart. And so... They violate his commands. They take a close look at the fruit and they see it looks pretty darn good and they reach out and they take it. They eat of it. What started as mockery progressed to suspicion ultimately ends in rebellion. You see right here at the heart of the serpent's temptation is this. He says that God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes are gonna be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. See, what's so ironic about that temptation is that according to Genesis 1, Adam and Eve were always supposed to be like God. We were actually told that God made them in his image and after his likeness. The question isn't, are they going to be like God or not be like God? It's, are they going to be like God through relationship or are they going to be like God on their own terms, getting to define right and wrong, good and evil for themselves? And the choice that they make is the latter. They decide that they're going to grasp that power for themselves to become like God on their own terms. 
and the result is rebellion. I love how the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner put it. He says, the pattern of sin runs runs right through the act. For the man and the woman listened to a creature instead of the creator, followed their impressions against their instructions, and made self-fulfillment their goal. The man and the woman have been sold a false idea of evil as something beyond good, of wisdom as sophistication, and now of greatness as greed. That's the heart of their problem. They believe that they can be like God, but on their own terms. And this is ultimately at the heart of every human response to God. It's the insistence on our own way on living our lives according to our own plans. Although even though we didn't create ourselves, even though we didn't craft the universe, we selfishly believe and pridefully assert that we have the right to do whatever we want with the lives that we've been given. But what we fail to see, what we fail to understand is that the boundaries and rules that God put into place are there for our good. That just as parents put rules into place for their children to protect them, so God likewise had put rules in place for our benefit and our flourishing, that we might experience life to its fullest. But when we allow suspicion and mockery to undermine our trust in God's goodness and his fatherly love and care, the result is that we go our own way. And this, at the root, is what has caused all the brokenness in our world today. We see how it all breaks down as we move into the rest of the story. We see that the very first thing that happens is that the result leads to shame. The moment they know that they've done something wrong, what do they do? They they try to hide. Listen to what it says in verse 7. It says that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, right here, this is how we tend to kind of try to deal with the brokenness in our world. Rather than admitting it, openly bringing it into the light. We try to cover it up. We try to hide it and stick it where people can't find it. We we put on masks and and a veneer of perfection, like we've got our lives all together, but deep down we know the shame still remains and it still persists. We do our very, very best to hide it, but it's nothing more than fig leaves. And we always run around constantly in terror that somebody is gonna find us out. Shame then also leads to blame. Notice what happens next when God comes looking for them to find out what's happened and what's gone wrong. The result is a breakdown in their relationships. It says that as they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid Because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice the breakdown in their relationships. They start to blame one another for what happened. They even start to blame God. I mean, did you notice what Adam said? It's the woman that you gave me, Lord, has caused me to do this. But neither Adam nor Eve is allowed to get off the hook because of the fact that they both took, they both ate. In fact, it says it so explicitly in verse uh, six of this passage. It says that the woman took of the fruit and ate, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. 
And instead of admitting their rebellion, instead of fessing up to what they did wrong, what did they do? They turn on one another in blame. They blame each other. And again, this is how we, I think, tend to try to deal with the brokenness. Well, it's not my fault. It's their fault. It's not something that I did. So-and-so made me. It's a result of my upbringing, my family of origin, society, my socioeconomic status, and so on and so forth. And now this isn't to deny that there, yes, there are systems of brokenness out in our world. But at the end of the day, there is this unwillingness to admit the part that we play. And so we look for a scapegoat. We point fingers and blame rather than taking responsibility. Shame, blame, and then ultimately, finally, pain. We see that the result of all these choices that the man and the woman make is that they're not only alienated from God, the author of life, but it sets all of creation on this downward spiral. As we look at verses 14 all the way to verse 19, God tells them what the consequences of this rebellion will be. And in fact, we see that the word pain is brought up uh, three times in just two verses. In speaking to the woman, he talks about now the pain that she's going to experience bringing forth life. When talking to the man, he talks about the pain that he's going to experience in just trying to, to bring forth food from the ground, hardship and work and toil. That as they're expelled from paradise and cut off from the God who provided everything for them, all that's left outside of his presence is a breakdown in creation, not only in their relationships, but in, in how they experience life itself. And ultimately, this all leads to death. The ultimate separation from God, the ultimate unraveling of everything that he's made, that just as human beings were taken from the dust of the ground, God says, and now... By the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread until you returned to the ground for out of it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. By turning our backs on God, by cutting ourselves off from the author of life, all of life begins to fall apart, to disintegrate. It all falls back into the uncreation from whence it came. And that's the danger here. This is what God was trying to protect them from. And again, our, our attempts to deal with the brokenness of our world as we try to cover it up or we try to blame other things out there, but instead of facing it. And I think the reason why is because we know it's too overwhelming for us. I mean, think about all the various ways in which we try to fix our world. After countless generations of humanity, we still come short. I mean, think about this. If, if the problem of the world is that we simply need justice, then all we need is more laws, more judges, better lawyers. If the issues facing society today is that a lack of access to things like healthcare, then what we need are more hospitals and more doctors. And if the problem with humanity is that we just don't know enough, we need better education or greater technology, then all we need are more teachers, more schools, more access to technology and finances and resources resources. But if we stop and we think about the arc of human history, we are more educated, better equipped with more advances in technology than we've ever had before. And yet we still come up short that the bloodiest conflicts in human history happened in just the last century. You see, the problem is the human heart. And if that's the case, that our hearts are so bent and twisted around our own self-glory, then what we need is a solution that is far more drastic because our best simply isn't enough. 
So the question is, is where is their hope? And there's a hint of it in this text as well. I don't know if you caught it, but it's found in verse 15, where God is talking to the serpent, to the original rebel, to the one who tempted Adam and Eve to turn their backs on their God. And this is what he says, speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, what it tells the serpent is that one day a child will come from the woman. And this child is going to overcome death by dying. The serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush its head. And throughout the scriptures, the people were looking for that one who would come, that child of the woman who one day would overcome death by laying down his own life. And when he finally showed up, it was in another garden and before another tree. That Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, being tempted to turn his back on his father, bowed his head in worship and said, not my will be done, but yours. And likewise, on the cross, he climbed a tree and gave up his life that we might live. I love how the writer of Acts puts it. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Likewise, the apostle Paul said that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. See, what the writers of the New Testament understood is that in Jesus, the son of the woman had come. The one who had entered into this world to lay down his life so that we might live. We who deserve to return to dust. We who try to hide in our shame. We who point fingers and blame at one another. He took all of that upon himself. That on the cross he was ashamed. That on the cross he was accused. That on the cross his hands were pierced. And a spear was driven through his side so that as he laid down his life, we might live. He took the punishment that we deserved so that we might be welcomed back into paradise, back into the presence of the God who loved us. By dying, he overcame death. That's why the Apostle Paul writes these beautiful words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, And when the, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the deeper solution that God provides to the wickedness of the human heart. Is that all that we deserved, he takes upon his own shoulders. He dies in our place saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That he might rise again in glory and welcome us back into his presence. The result is that we don't have to hide in fear anymore. We don't have to blame. We can be honest about the ways in which we fall short in God's presence because he knows. And yet he's provided for us. He's given us a hope that goes beyond death. And we can know that just as he's now overcome death, there will come again a day when he will restore us back to paradise. 
That's why the final image of the last pages of the Bible is that we are welcomed once more into God's presence in a garden and a city that is more beautiful and more amazing than anything ever encountered in Eden. But it all happens because of what Christ has done for us. And it's part of the reason why we can sing with the hymn writer. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that in the face of our rebellion, you offer us forgiveness. That when we turned our backs on you, you pursued us. You entered into our broken world and laid down your life that we might live. Lord, there are so many ways in which we try to hide what's wrong or we try to blame others for what we've done. But in the face of your mercy and your grace, it can all be brought into the light. We can admit the ways in which we've fallen short and know that the words you give back to us are words of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And so, Lord, we pray that in a broken world, we would cling to the hope that we have in you, knowing that in Christ there is redemption, that all of our brokenness and our rebellion is brought to an end. And Lord, we pray that that hope would be the hope that goes with us as we live out in our broken world to bring the same hope that we've now received. Lord, send us into your world with that good news. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we say, amen.